All right, let's get started. Um, tonight is our 14th lesson in Ephesians. We are, let's go ahead and put, put title up, Purpose of the Mystery. Last week, we talked about the mystery revealed, and then I, I told you this was sort of a trilogy involving Paul's, what Paul calls the mystery. Um, a phrase that Paul, I don't know if he heard the Lord say this is the mystery, or if Paul just was so amazed by it, he called it a mystery. I kind of lean to, to Paul looking at this like, we didn't see this coming. We were raised in Judaism. We were raised in temple worship. We were raised sacrificing lambs. We were raised with incense and priests and holy feast days. And we met Jesus. And all we really thought was we had found the Messiah. All we really thought was we had found the Messiah. But what I mean by that is that Judaism had found their fulfillment. This, is, this has got to be the way Saul of Tarsus thinks. And then he, the more he talks to Jesus, the less he believes that what he has found is um, a Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome, a, a military leader that's going to destroy Caesar. And the more he believes he's found the Savior of the world. And that is a mystery by itself. But then when the message expands to include Romans, barbarians, strangers, people on the edge of the empire, he didn't see that coming. There's no way that, that you could read Genesis to Malachi and be convinced that God's end game was going to be to establish a body of believers on the earth that consisted of Gentiles and Jews. You could get the undercurrents of God loves everybody. That's in there. You don't have to work real hard in the Old Testament to see that God wants, wants to talk to Gentiles. That's Jonah and Nineveh. But you're, you're not going to come up with the church is the end game. And so Paul goes... It was a mystery. We didn't see this till now. And so we talked about the mystery being revealed. We want to talk about the purpose of that mystery, but I want to start with just one statement that really encompasses last week, brings us into this week. It's been revealed through grace that Gentiles are fellow heirs. That's the core of the mystery. Gentiles get everything that the Jews believed belonged to them as the people of God because they were circumcised, they had the law, they had a promised land. They observed sacrificial systems, temple worship. That gave Judaism the belief that they were the people of God. And why wouldn't they believe that? That's what God had told them. But the mystery revealed was that by grace, everybody else could come in and, be a, and receive the promise through Christ. And in the next segment tonight, Paul attempts to answer why God made it a mystery. I mean, why did God keep it in the dark? Um, admittedly, this is a segment in this series that um, I never really, never really considered skipping, but I considered rushing through it. And it's not because it's not good. It's, it's awesome. But because if you've been with us for a few months, the whole reason we did the church series was birthed out of tonight's text, Ephesians chapter 3, where Paul says that the mystery has been handed over to the church and the church gets to present the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers. And that, we, we taught that. That was our opening night of talking about the church. And from there, we took that mystery and we said, okay, what's the church get to do then? It's like, what's the purpose? It's not to come together and sing songs and say prayers and go to a building and, you know, have an event once in a while and have a church dinner. All that stuff's fine, but it's ancillary. It's not, you could do that and be a part of a civic group. You wouldn't need to be the church of Jesus Christ, get together and eat dinner and, you know, tell stories and share your life. People do that all the time. Um, so what, what was the purpose? And so we did months on the church, and we tried to investigate it through the, through the book of Acts. But we really sprang out of this part right here in Ephesians 3, where Paul says, hey, we exist. One of our great reasons for existence is to proclaim this good news, this wisdom, and to give that over into the realm of the Spirit. And so I, I got to this and thought, well, you know, we've We've been, we did all this stuff on the church. Why go back into this one more time? And then there's two reasons I couldn't do that. One is because, well, people that come and look for the book of Ephesians are going to be pretty disappointed when you get to the middle part of chapter three and you just go, okay, go watch another series now. Um, that doesn't work real well. Uh, and also because something I've learned the hard way in ministry, um, never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to teach you something new in a passage you thought you had nailed. So I now look at those moments and say, okay, 
We were there three weeks ago. We were there three months ago, but it's time to do that again. Okay, let's go, Holy Spirit. It's kind of put up or shut up because you say to people, oh, you could turn around and teach this again. You'd have new things to say. Really? Okay. What might he say then if you took that challenge? Because really, you've all been doing that your entire lives if you've read the Bible twice. I mean, if you still haven't read it once, I challenge you to read it once. But once you turn it over and read it twice, what are you doing reading it the second time for? I mean, you didn't read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and flip back and go to chapter one the second you finished. You know, we don't do that with novels. We don't do that with history books. We don't just turn to the front page and try it one more time. Why do we do it with the Bible? If not, that the Holy Spirit has something new to teach me through the same old words, because I'm not the same person that read that six months ago. And he has something to teach me at this spot in the road that I couldn't learn in that spot in the road. And so that's why this thing is alive and you never really exhaust it. And if it does get exhausting, take a step back, refresh your Bible reading, go look for Jesus and start over. So let's read and let's read the whole section. And you know what I like to do is to break it down piece by piece, but we're going to save that. Instead, I want to show you this whole little chunk from 8 to 13 to me. Remember, this is Paul talking. Who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that, that alone, um, I, don't, I don't even know what to do with unsearchable riches. I admit that if it's unsearchable, I can't search it out, but that doesn't mean we don't try. It's like it's a bottomless pit of God's goodness and it's found in Jesus. So he's better than you think he is. What I've tried to teach myself is God is better than I think he is. He's more loving than I think he is. He's more merciful than I think he is. And so every time I run up against something where I go, oh, I don't know, that you might be pushing it too far. I think, well, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. So you probably haven't pushed it far enough. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So Paul admitting this mystery has been hidden. But it's not hidden any longer. 10. To the intent that now... Now, crucial word, not yesterday, not tomorrow. This is not prophetic. Now, and I think in many ways we're living in that now, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers. That's the verse right there, Ephesians 3.10. That got us on the church journey because that was the verse in which we said, God's got a big old multicolored palette of wisdom that we don't know anything about. And he wants to make it known by all of us to the realm of the Spirit. So the church exists primarily not as a quote-unquote soul-saving station. That's how I heard the church described a lot growing up. We're a soul-saving station, but really, that's, we don't have as much precedent in the word for that as we would to say something like, the church is the visual, living evidence of God's wisdom. And it lives and breathes and moves through us. If we move, it moves. And we exist to show the principalities and powers that are in heavenly places, what God looks like. And so, how are we doing? You know, we work so hard to build the church, and most of us think it's not, that's part of what it means to be saved, is i got to help build the church. Jesus is building the church. But are we presenting the manifold wisdom of God as the people of God? That's, that's a better question. And according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul, as is Paul's custom, brings it right back to Jesus. He doesn't really know any other way to preach. Verse 12, in whom, and this is in Christ, in Christ, we have boldness, we have access, and we have confidence. That's really three things. Boldness, access, confidence, through faith in Christ. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. So something's going wrong in Paul. Something's not not wrong in Paul, but to Paul. He's facing tribulations and he says, don't worry. We're going to be all right. Let's go back to verse 8. And we won't spend as much time on every verse. Um, but up, up top and, and, and towards the middle of this, there's some things that I've been wrestling with that I wanted to wrestle out loud with you. So let's go back to the beginning of that segment. To me, who am less than least, less than the least of all the saints. That's an interesting phrase. Less than the least. Pick the least of the saints. I know this is subjective. This is Paul going, whoever's the worst of the bunch, put me a notch lower than them. God gave me this grace that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
Let me show you this through another voice. I mean, still Paul, but he, he has a different style to the Corinthians. Listen to how he says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. I am the least of the apostles. That's very similar to his text in Ephesians. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The, the Holy Spirit really, really went to work on me with something this morning in prayer for tonight that is in relation to this passage. And I want to get to it in a second. Before I do, I want you to realize one thing at the end. I labored more abundantly than everybody else. I didn't do it. It was the grace of God which was with me. If, if laboring abundantly in grace is not part of your message of grace, you've heard the message of grace mispreached. And Paul is proof. I didn't say you work for your grace, but you work out of your grace. And if you haven't heard that you ought to be working out of your grace, you haven't heard grace preached the way Paul preached it. Paul said, I labored more abundantly than everybody else, and I did it by grace. So this idea that we don't really do anything, we just sort of rest and we receive the, the goodness of God, and that's what the end game is for grace. No, the end game for grace is not a bunch of people that just have God's goodness. It's people who rest in God's goodness and take it out. They do something with it. That's part of being the church. And so we're not coming together to simply... Um, be complimentary. I, I had someone that replied to the ministry a couple weeks ago that they were pretty unhappy with the sermon I had posted because I made the comment, and I think I made it to this group, um, I made the comment that grace is not a doctrine by which we all sit around and congratulate one another on having received identity in the fullness of God, but rather it is something that empowers us to do the good works that God put in us to do. And someone found that very offensive that I would bring up works at all in relation to grace. Well, you know, be offended, I suppose. There are much worse things to be offended on. Uh, I will say it again. There is no possible way that you can receive the grace of God and not do something with the grace of God. It's just not, I don't think you've actually heard God's grace if it's just been, boy, I got it now. I'm just going to go out and live. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't fly with the message of Jesus. Like Jesus doesn't meet somebody and then in, and bless them and heal them and, and provide a miracle for them and them just sort of, hey, thumbs up, thanks a lot, and they just go about their business. Jesus invites us into that relationship of discipleship. I was doing a podcast today on Mark 5 with a gathering demoniac, and this kid gets, gets 6,000 demons cast out of him. A Roman legion was 6,000 men. So when he says legion, he's got 6,000 spirits. You can say what you want about what it means to have 6,000 demons, or maybe it's just 6,000 competing voices in his head. But the fact that it's a legion means it's gone militant and it's crushing his soul. And Jesus delivers him. And you get to the end of the story, and he's sitting, and he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. And he says to Jesus, I want to come and follow you. And Jesus says, no. Go home and tell your friends everything that's happened to you. And, the, and the, the, the story ends by saying, and the young man went throughout the cities of Decapolis. Decapolis is a Greek word meaning 10 cities. So the kid goes city to city in Decapolis telling what God did for him. And for the first time in my life when I was doing that podcast today, it struck me that he didn't have one bit of theological knowledge about what to say. He didn't have a verse to quote. He's in the Gadarenes, which means he's not even Jewish. He doesn't have the Torah as his background. He's been in a, 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 an idol-worshiping culture his entire life. God knows what got him living amongst the tombs and in the caves and cutting himself and dragging broken chains around with him. But he goes to the next city, and the only instruction Jesus gives him is just go tell people about how compassionate I was to you. And I thought... God, that's the core of the gospel right there. That's just telling somebody, look, I don't have a bunch of scriptures memorized. I don't know where you're going to go when you die. Don't ask me what, if, the, if the wafer really turns into the body of Jesus or not. I don't know. What I do know is Jesus is good to me. And let me tell you what he did for me. And Jesus felt like that was enough equipment. 
Like this kid's got enough to go do something with it. In fact, it'd be better for him to go do that than to get on the boat and follow me, which is, uh, that's kind of a mind-blowing revelation right there too. And sometimes the last thing you need to do is quote-unquote active ministry. You need to go tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. I've encountered a lot of people want to be in full-time ministry that can't tell someone at Walmart about Jesus. Well, you know, um, your life is Jesus. So maybe sharing with your next door neighbor what happened to you should be a prerequisite before you get your preacher card. <laughs> just an idea. And you don't even have to know anything. You just got to know what he did for you. Like, what did he do for you? Oh, share that. And that's a good place to start. Um, that's grace. If you, you want to nutshell it, it's the goodness of God that, that transforms someone into a mouthpiece for Christ. And I, I don't mean a preacher. I, I just mean you share who you are and you share what you are. All right, all of that was a side trail. Here's what the Holy Spirit really worked on me. Here's what the Holy Spirit really worked on me today. Um, I'm going to give you a confession. When I read Ephesians 3.8 and Paul goes, I'm less than the least. And then I go to 1 Corinthians 15, 9, and Paul goes, I'm the least. I am suspicious of Paul. I don't trust him. My first instinct is, Paul doesn't really believe that. Because I know Paul's writings. Paul can get a little polish in there. And I mean, he can get a little, you guys come follow me, I'm doing it right. And if you don't think so, dig into Galatians 1 and see what happens. When Paul goes, I got the message, and if you don't, double curse to you. And you go, whoa, pull on the reins a little bit, Paul. That's pretty big. I mean, I mean, he gets to the end of one book, and he goes, you know, if you don't love it, anathema to you. That's, that's a curse. He's like, you know, follow it or don't. And so Paul's got a little bit of that in him. And so I got to admit... I looked at this and I kind of went, I don't know if I trust Paul here. I don't think he's as humble as he acts. And I was running this morning and praying about tonight. And the Holy Spirit said to me, why are you suspicious of Paul in Ephesians 3 and in 1 Corinthians 15? Why are you suspicious that Paul says he's humble? Because what you think about Paul's answer there isn't really what you think about Paul. It's what you think about you. Because the reality is, is it's really, really easy to spot the speck in your neighbor's eye, and you always have a beam in your eye because really when you spot the speck, and I've taught you this, it's really just the end of the beam hanging out of your own eye socket that you're seeing. That speck in their eye is this big old long thing that just ends up on them. Psychologists call that projection. It's like you project onto someone else what it is. You. So the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, why is it that you don't trust it or is it that you don't trust you? Is it that you really don't trust your own humility or your own position or your own place? And so I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that as I prayed about it, I felt like the Lord said, don't be so suspicious that you can't celebrate the good. So I ran and prayed on that for a little while. What does that mean? Don't be so suspicious that you can't celebrate the good. And I think about things like revival like the Asbury revival that everyone has heard about. And I've been asked by, you know, 10 people, what do you think about that revival? And my first response is suspicion because I saw a bunch of fake stuff happen in the church. And I go, well, you know, I know the power of a snowball rolling down a hill and it isn't always the Holy Spirit that pushes the snowball. Sometimes it's gravity and Stuff happens, and so you pick stuff up as you go, and maybe it is the Spirit, and maybe it isn't the Spirit. And so I'm suspicious, but the truth is, is that I prayed for revival. So I pray for young people, because those, those are the kids at that college are my kids' age. So I'm praying, Father, reveal yourself to the next generation. Show them your love. Show them your grace. Show them your goodness. So when I hear of revival, then why is my first instinct, well, I don't know if that's God, when my prayer was, God, make that you. And so if we're suspicious of everything, it's difficult for us to celebrate the good. And so I don't know what you're supposed to do with that other than really check your suspicions. <laughs> because sometimes it says more about where you are than it does about where someone else is. And so 
How I've been praying is, Lord, what I really hope is that nobody comes in and co-ops that revival. Keep the big praise and worship people out. Don't let them record their live album there. Keep the big name preacher out that wants to come in and prophesy doom and gloom on someone's platform. Just let these kids enjoy your goodness. And the moment someone steps in to co-opt it, just move your wind somewhere else. It's the best thing I know to pray. And as long as the wind of the Spirit is there, may it refresh souls. May it, may it be joy unspeakable, as the Bible would say. And you don't even have to know how to explain it. It's like the wind blows where it wants to and you hear the sound and you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going, such as everyone born of the Spirit. How would we get this? I don't know. Don't try to figure it out. Big, big mistake to try to figure it out. It's an act of His goodness and it's an act of His grace. Just enjoy it. So I am praying to be less suspicious of what is good so that I can enjoy and rejoice in what is good. You know, it's kind of like cheering for a team. If you have your team, and I obviously have mine. (laughs) It's baseball season, so, you know, welcome. Um, I often say, because I, okay, so like I listen to podcasts about my team and no one hates our team like our fans, but that's universal. Like nobody hates your team like your fans. They talk trash about it, cut them down. They don't want anybody else to do it. It's kind of like, you know, you can cut your brother down, but nobody else better cut your brother down. That kind of thing. Okay, that's fine. The problem is, is sometimes we get so adamant in our opinions that I've noticed that as a fan, you can't even rejoice when you're wrong about a player. So I've been telling you guys that guy's not any good. I've been telling you guys he doesn't even belong on the team. Then he goes on a streak, you know, gets, you know, get, hits 420 for two weeks. You can't even enjoy it because you just keep waiting on him to fail so it can justify your suspicions. I've been telling you he's not very good. I've been telling you he's not very good. You go, Why can't you just enjoy this? And I don't want to be that way in the move of God. I don't care to be that way in sports. Who gives a rip? Right? Okay. Uh, I mean, I don't really want to be that way. I'd rather enjoy the, 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 you know, the dude hidden well for two weeks. That's more, way more fun than not enjoying it. But I don't want to be that way with the move of God. So listen, I'm going to take Paul at his word. And something humbled a man. And it's probably not too hard to see if you're Saul of Tarsus and you're on the hunt to kill Christians and you meet Jesus and he makes you blind for a few days and takes the scales off your eyes, you, you, you probably get your pride knocked out of you. You know, the old pride wins gone. So I'm going to take Paul at his word and go, I don't think I deserve this. I don't think I'm worth this. Um, I wanted to share that with you because I really think that little segment is for someone. It might not even be for this room, but it's going to be for someone who needed to hear that it's time to rejoice when people rejoice. Okay? You don't have to be the smartest theologian in the room just rejoice when people rejoice be happy when people are happy celebrate you go yeah but i got a sneaky suspicion i've got a verse i'd like to drop on them (laughs) you know maybe keep your weaponized bible holstered for a bit that's yeah that's okay too yeah because we weaponize scripture like crazy as we knock people down with it. Maybe holster that. The next time you feel like it's time for you to slit some spirit throats with that verse you came up with. You know, I got this thing I learned in the Greek. This is going to silence them all. Maybe just put that baby behind for a little while. Just let it rest for a little bit. Just see what happens if you slept on that one day or two. And I think what we would find is that it's okay to rejoice when people rejoice. It's okay to celebrate when people celebrate. And that really leads me into where I think Paul goes next. Go back to this Ephesians 3, 8. I'm least. Actually, I'm less than least. I'm preaching the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm tempted to just get lost in the rabbit hole of what it means to the unsearchable riches of Christ. But I don't even know what I would say. It's unsearchable. Um, Fall in love with reading about Jesus. And when you do, you'll find that you cannot get enough. Uh, I have found that the Gospels are an inexhaustible source of goodness. I cannot get enough of Jesus. The stories are the same. They haven't added stories to the Gospels, and yet I keep finding Jesus do stuff that shocks me. Um, And I'm okay with that. I think that's a beautiful journey. And so it's unsearchable. To make all see what's the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God. He created all things. He did it through Christ to the intent that now, and I had you really emphasize that word now. I wanted you to think about now. Because in Paul's world, everything had led up to the person of Jesus and then exploded out of the resurrection. And I truly believe that we had a a change in the realm of the Spirit 
when Jesus went to the cross and then came out the other side in the resurrection. Everything changed. Jesus defeated the powers of hell at Calvary. Whatever darkness holds has been completely crushed and defeated in, in Jesus. And in that moment, we entered the now. And that now is stretching across time. Um, it's why Paul to the Corinthians says, now is the appointed time of salvation. Uh, when is now? Right now. Whenever you are in that now, that now meets us every day. So now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Let me compare this for a moment with Peter. 1 Peter 1 Of this salvation, the prophets, verse 10, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time, when? Searching what or what manner of time, what manner of time did did grace show up? Paul called it now. Peter says, We didn't really know. We knew something was coming. What manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To those prophets, to these guys back here, it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Paul Paul and Peter are in agreement that the, the, the revelation of the fullness of the grace of God has been revealed through the prophetic witness, but had, been, had come to fruition to a now moment in both Peter and Paul's ministry. And that now moment is manifested in a way that even the angels desire to look into. I, I, I'm stumbling here because I, it's one of those things that for my walk, I have been so taken with this Jesus, this resurrected Christ, this outpouring of the Spirit. And just when I think I got something, I recognize that I've got nothing and that there's so much more to His depth and so much more to His fullness and so much more to His goodness, and I'm just a man. And the immortals, the other side, the angelic hosts, the principalities, the powers, the, the, that which I can't see, they are staring into this resurrected Jesus in absolute amazement at what they are seeing. Which <laughs> tells me that we ain't seen nothing yet. You know, like I see some things, God does some things and reveals some things. I get excited about it and think, wow, I'm learning something. And here's the spiritual principalities and powers of the world and and the angels wish they could look into. And they're staring into this great mystery and they are amazed at what they're finding. And according to Paul, where is that mystery being manifest? In the church. So what blows my mind is that the angels are looking into the church to learn things about the wisdom of God that they can't see in heaven. That's, let me try that again. Paul says that the manifold wisdom of God is revealed in his church by the church to the powers of the world. To the principalities and powers. That could be the invisible things. It could be the systems of this world. But Peter compliments it by saying, even angels wish they, angels are looking to. I mean, prophets said it was coming. It's been reported. We are the ones that get it. Not them, but us. And the angels are looking into it, trying to figure it out. Where's the wisdom of God being revealed, according to Ephesians 3? In the church of Jesus Christ. Out of the church, the wisdom of God is being revealed to the point that the angels of heaven look into the church. Look into the people of God to say, what can I learn about God through this young lady? And we go, well, that's not possible. They're angels. They just walk up to God. And that's why it blew Paul's mind. He said, this is a mystery. 
that what God is going to reveal through His church across time cannot be learned any other way than through His church across time. That even the principalities and the powers and the angels look into it and say, let's see what God's going to do. When Paul used the word manifold wisdom, he used the Greek word for multicolored, multi-variety. Um, if variety is the spice of life, then the church is the, you know, the spice rack of heaven. I mean, honestly, it's what God in His church has every flavor. For a long time, I was under the impression that we have made a huge error in Christianity and that we have all of these different denominations and these different ways of worship and different ways of preaching. And that I come from a school of thought that honestly thought that there had to be one of them was right. You know, God is truth. So can't be two truths. There's got to be one truth. And so there's got to be one right way of worshiping. And there's got to be one right way of preaching. And there's got to be one right way of seeing that verse. Well, I don't see that verse the way I saw it a year ago. So which one was right? Because I was pretty sure I was right a year ago. And so that, that, got, that, that started the process in me of going, okay, there's got to be something more than to this manifold, this, this... If the manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church, and manifold means multicolored, then the multicolored wisdom of God can only be seen through His church, which means there's a lot of things about God that are not going to be visible until we really take a look at what comprises His church. Maybe this is a thought. Why did God wait to unveil His plan through the church? This is really what Paul's trying to answer tonight. Maybe multicolored wisdom needs a multicolored people full of variety. And I mean maybe multicolored racially and maybe multicolored gender and maybe multicolored culturally and maybe multicolored in language, but certainly multicolored in personality and style and gifts and desires and dreams and hopes. It seems to me, if Paul uses the word for multicolored, he means a bunch of wisdom across time and a bunch of different ways. So maybe multicolored wisdom needs a multicolored people full of variety. In any case, God chose to allow his body to participate in the revelation of the mystery, which you need to keep in mind when you accuse the brethren. Or to put it more boldly, we need to keep in mind when we decide that other church ain't doing it right. Maybe... They are just a different expression of the multicolored wisdom of God. Oh, there's probably a bunch of stuff in there they're doing wrong. But who do we think we are? You know, there's probably a bunch of stuff in what we're doing that's far less than optimal. It's probably pushed us farther away from Him than towards Him a time or two. I know I've been involved in things I thought were super spiritual and look back on them and realized I might be three steps farther from God than when I started when it was all over with, and I thought we were really doing something hot, only to realize later that maybe it wasn't as good as I thought it was. And that was okay, because God walked through it with me and went, you know, you think you're really smart. You're not that smart, but I'm going to stay here anyway. You go, you think this place is boring. Imagine how bored God is. <laughs> you think this place is messed up. Imagine what God thinks. You think you, you've missed it. Imagine what God thinks. And so, just like your kids don't think the same, dress the same, act the same, listen to the same music, so God looks at us the same way. I'm, I'm, I'm believing that it's the thing that might help us to understand that God doesn't see it all through the exact same lens that we do. And it might keep us open to saying, I don't understand what He's saying or how they're worshiping or what they're doing, but I'm not going to stand against it because it's a, there's a chance that the multicolored wisdom of God is being put on display there. And I, I don't need to want to. Listen, this is, this is to me vital about, okay, let's talk revival again. I don't want what I've heard coming out of places. I don't want it in my life, personally. I'm not looking for it. 
It doesn't mean I can't celebrate somebody else having it and wanting it. I don't have to want what someone else is enjoying to celebrate their enjoyment in Christ with it. People will say to me, boy, you ought to see what God's doing in our place. I want to just rejoice and say, I'm so glad God's doing that in that place. And they go, don't you want to come be a part of it? My answer is probably not. I don't mean I don't for sure. I might, but probably not. I mean, I've been around a lot. I've been in a lot of churches. I've seen a lot of stuff. I probably don't want to be a part of it. I'm not going to throw a wet blanket on it. I'm not going to cut it down. I'm not going to mock it. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't be a part of it. But I'm also not going to feel guilty that I don't want what it is that somebody else wants. And you know why I'm not going to feel guilty is because I'm part of the multi multicolored manifold wisdom of God. What God's doing in me is not exactly what God's doing in you. And that's okay. I don't need you to validate what God's doing in me in order for me to enjoy what God's doing in me. Vice versa. You don't need me to say, yes, that's awesome. Way to go. I'm so proud that God's doing that in you. I wish I could be a part of that. You don't need that. You just need to rejoice in what God is doing for you. And I don't need to be a jerk about it. And if we can meet on that ground, we might be able to have some common ground in the church instead of looking across the street and going, you know, if they weren't so dead, they wouldn't have got out of church so soon. That's the way I was raised. You know why they're already dismissed? Because they don't let the Holy Ghost move over there in their church. Of course they're already at the restaurant. If you didn't let the Holy Ghost move in your altar service, you'd be in the restaurant too. But we let the Holy Ghost move over here. I don't know. Sometimes it wasn't the Holy Ghost. I know. I was on the stage. I mean, sometimes it was just like, play it again, because we're going to get somebody up here. Sometimes it was awesome. Sometimes it was an incredible move of the Holy Spirit. I love it that you don't get to tell the Holy Spirit how He does it two weeks in a row. Not when you really meet the living God, because the living God goes, oh yeah, I'm going to heal three blind men this, this week. But I'm going to touch one dude's eyes, I'm going to point at another guy, and I'm going to spit on the ground on the third one. And that's Jesus, by the way, in the Gospels. Why does he do it differently every time? Because he doesn't want you to think you can figure out the manifold wisdom of God. So I don't know exactly how he's going to do it, but I rejoice that he does it. And I rejoice that he wants to continue to do it. So different expressions of the church may be more in line with his plan than I want to believe. I don't have to stand against them. I'm going to stand and rejoice in them. Now, if all this is true, I have no reason to believe it's not because the church has survived 2,000 years. Severe persecutions and droughts. Um, mass executions. And we've been on both sides of it. We have both had the sword at our neck and we've held the sword. We do not have a track record of loving our neighbor well, um, of always doing the right thing, of having the moral high ground. And yet here we are. We somehow have survived it all. How? Well, I attribute that to the fact that the Holy Spirit is alive and well in the church. And that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding and moving on His people. That across time, if you study church history, across time, you see God do a lot of amazing things. Sometimes the absolutely physical miraculous. Other times, it's almost like silent revolution. Where there's splits and diversions and things that change in the church survives and grows up around those things in new and beautiful and fantastic ways. What's amazing is that if you look at a waterfall or you look at a rainbow or you look at the sunset, you get an overwhelming sense of inspiration. Believers get that and say, isn't God beautiful? An unbeliever gets it and maybe they don't know why they feel the way they do, but they are still in awe. Paul took that in Romans 1 and he said, that visible creation is evidence of God. And we've been making, the church has been making that argument with Paul for 2,000 years. Go, the reason you're in such awe is because it's God. What are the odds that in this speck of the universe, life just so happened? And that there is not a God who has put his attention to who we are. And so I'm not here for apologetics on creation or apologetics on God. But I think what my point is that you can be awe-inspired by looking at creation. But 
God did not choose to reveal the manifold wisdom of God through sunrises, through waterfalls, or through rainbows, but through the very risky business of handing it to his church. Because we can really screw stuff up. We're good at it. The evident, to me, the fact that we survive, that we do not all have to have a uniform theology around every nook and cranny, every cross, T, and dotted I of theology, and yet we survive as disciples of a resurrected Christ. We rally universally around that one thing. And then out of all of those expressions, the manifold wisdom of God is made known. I think it's spectacular that God chose the riskiest way. And that is the church. Think about it. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells the disciples to go tarry in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. And 120 of them do. 500 people saw him resurrected. Only 120 stay in Jerusalem. That's 380 people that ignored him. This is, we're not off to a good start. So 120 people gather in the upper room on the day of Pentecost and they wait and the Holy Spirit is poured out. And Jesus told them to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. And a third of the way through the book of Acts, they haven't left the street they received the Holy Ghost on. And you've got to think that as the angels peered into this, they went, this was risky business. These guys are prone to laziness and selfishness and infighting, and everyone thinks they're right. What are we going to do? And I think, you know, Jesus had to look at the angels a time or two and go, it's okay, I live inside of them. I'm working on them. They all think they're a finished product, but none of them are. I'm going to work on them. And across 20 centuries, that's what he's been doing. We, we may not be any better than we were then, but we are expressions of the manifold wisdom of God. I don't know why he chose to do it other than just sheer joy and love for his children. I think he just loves to see the expression of his father through us. I think it is so that we can see the expressions of the father in so many different ways because one of the things I love about this meeting is that I am learning. Some of you I don't know well, but, but most of you in this room, I've known you now for a few years, and I am getting more accustomed to the way Jesus looks in your eyes. In other words, I'm, I'm growing more accustomed to the way he sounds through your voice when you say something or when you share your heart or when you talk about God, I can see the Father in you in a way that I can admire or that I can aspire to and that I can say, that's why I'm glad they're in my life. I don't want anything from them. I just like the color of God in them. The manifold beauty of God's wisdom comes out of that man or that woman in a way that inspires me and blesses me and my Wednesday is better because I saw Jesus in their eyes on Tuesday. And that is the power of what we do and the power of community. And let me land on community because if the manifold wisdom of God is showing in the church, there's no way to say it other than community. So let's say it this way. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. According to the eternal purpose he accomplished in Christ Jesus in whom we have boldness and we have access with confidence through faith in him. In Christ we have boldness. And we have access. Now, let me show you this two other times. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help the time of need. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. That's one of the most popular boldly passages. Here's the other one. And I want you to watch the context of this. I gave you several verses here for a reason. So see if you see something similar in Hebrews 10 that you saw in Ephesians 3. And I'm going to give you a hint before you start. Ephesians 3, he wants to show the manifold wisdom of God through the church. Oh, and by the way, you get to boldly come before the throne. Okay? Hebrews 10, 19. By a new and a living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And we have a high priest over the house of God. 
Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We don't draw near based on we've had a good week. It's, a, it's, a, you're, it's not I draw near with a heart that hadn't sinned. It's I draw near with a heart full assurance that my faith's enough. I believe on you. Not my perform- I don't drag my performance in here before Jesus. I draw near with a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, not from evil deeds. So you say, you did something wrong this week. I don't have the right to go to God. Stop it. Stop it. That's foolishness. You've been sprinkled from an evil conscience. Your body's been washed. You don't, don't carry an evil conscience with you. Don't carry, don't carry a conscience that gives more credence to what you've done wrong than to what Jesus has done right. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. Most of us have only heard Hebrews 10.25 as a condemning verse when we miss church. So you go, you miss church on Sunday, Bible says... Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, let's really work on what the Bible actually says. Consider each other in order to stir up the love of your neighbor and the good works in your neighbor. Why would you consider the other person? Because you can, because of what grace has done to save you, to clean your conscience, to clean you up in front of God, it's also been done in your neighbor. So encourage them and stir them up and don't forsake getting together with them but exhort them and do it even more as you see the day approaching. Whatever your day is, whatever that means, and we know it, it's got eschatological overtones, but this isn't a you missed on Sunday, now you're lost verse. It's a why would you forsake the very group of people who have what you have? When you forsake them, you end up with a group of people that don't have. You see what's, you see what's happening in this? You end up with a group of people that don't have what you have, that don't know what you know about this. And inside of that group, guess what's coming? Not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together, man, or some exhort one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. Go back one screen. Draw near. Hold fast. Go back. New and living way. His flesh. High priest. Go back. Boldly to the throne of grace. What's Ephesians 3? Confident, bold, assurance. Church is the mystery. What's Hebrews 10? Boldly, through His body, no consciousness of sins. Don't forsake assembling together. Out of the church, the manifold mystery of God is revealed and the people in the church get to boldly go to Jesus. The people, flip it to Hebrews 10, the people that are boldly going to Jesus ought to get together. Any reference to bold access to Christ in the New Testament has as an ancillary thought the church of Jesus Christ. And we've made bold approach a purely devotional prayer thing. Hey, when you get up tomorrow and you get in your prayer closet, you can boldly go to Jesus. But within context, the bold approach to God happens in community. What in the world does that mean? It might mean what Jesus said. If there are two or three of you gathered together in my name, I'm in the midst. We've come up with a big fancy word called corporate anointing in the church. I don't know, somebody probably put that in a book somewhere and then it became like trademark. Okay, that's not really in the Bible, but the spirit of God moves in the midst of His church. It permeates the Bible. And so I very much believe that I'll go to heaven without any of you. I don't think I need any of you to be righteous. If I don't ever see you again, I'll see you in heaven. I don't need you to save me, to justify me, to sanctify me. But I want you. Because I don't plan on going today. And so on the way, I want the support of the assembled together ones 
so that you can encourage me and I can encourage you. And in that, I realize the boldness that I have because I get to see a version of Christ in your eyes that I might not see when I look in the mirror. And while I don't need you for my righteousness or my sanctification, my justification, I sure do want you because I'm righteous and I'm sanctified and I'm justified. I want you because I've seen Jesus in you and I like what I see and I see stuff in you I don't see in me. And so the manifold wisdom of God is shining through his people. So why did he choose the church to do this? I think that's why. Because we are by nature a communal people. You want to know what the Gadarene demoniac's biggest problem was? Go back to my, my boy. He sleeps in the caves and he lives amongst the tombs. And the longer you isolate, the worse it gets. And when he quote unquote got saved, Jesus sent him back to his family because that's what he lacked the first time. And so there's something to be said for the group of people around us. We are a part of the revelation of the mystery. Let's pray. Let's pray and just let, let the Father speak to you on how you pray. I don't, I don't always pray the same way over the Word in my own life. Um, it's not because I'm trying to avoid rote repetition, but it's also a little bit because I think there's more to it than just formula. So, Father, I don't know what every person in this room needs in regards to how this sermon should land. But I do know that I've seen you in the faces of this, this group. I've, see, I've heard you in their voices. And I've learned to appreciate it in ways I never considered before. I, I think the manifold wisdom of God is stunning. So I pray that you teach me how to not be so critical that I can't rejoice in success because I might be missing a chance to appreciate the color and the shade of the Holy Spirit that I have missed. Sometimes I live in too much of a black and white theological world when it's far more monochrome, it's far more technicolor in your grace than I give it credit for. I, 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 I want to enjoy those colors. And that's how we do this as a body and teach us, Lord, what that looks like to come together in that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.